All right, hello everybody. Um, I hope you can hear me, see me, etc. Um, it's really nice to see you all here this evening for this. Um, I think the first in in this series of talks over the course of the next few weeks, where staff are sharing their research with uh, students in the department, undergraduate students, master's students, uh, PhD students, and I can see uh, I think the full gamut of of those different student profiles in the participants list. So thank you very much for, for coming. Uh, it's a little bit of a strange one for me. Um, it may be strange only for me, but this is reminding me of the fact that the last time I presented my work to the department, I presented um, a chapter of, of, of the book I'm gonna to talk to you about this evening um, to our, our staff and research student research seminar, uh, was I think the day after Dominic Cummings had dominated uh, the news cycle with his kind of apology, not apology for driving to Barnard Castle in the Rose Garden of number 10 Downing Street. Uh, and it was just very strange for me today as I've been preparing this talk, having Dominic Cummings dominate the news cycle uh, once again with his uh, testimony to the select committee uh, in Westminster. Um, so there's there's a weird echo there, but hopefully um, hopefully I'll give a maybe slightly more convincing account of myself than, than he's done. Um, so what I'm going to talk to you about today is the research project that I've been involved in um, undertaking for the last seven or eight years, really. I started around about 2012, 2013. So this gives you a kind of sense of the life cycle of academic research projects. I hope um, to submit the manuscript based on this project, which will be a book of about 100,000 words published by the University of Chicago Press. I hope to submit that in the next couple of months. I have a, a notional deadline at the end of June that I might just miss, um, but I'll definitely have it to them by, by the end of September. Um, and really what I'm just gonna do is talk to you hopefully for about 20 minutes or so um, about some of the kind of key elements of the project that I've been working on. Uh, I can't possibly do it full justice, um, but I want to try and talk you through it in something of the style of a research presentation that some of you who are master's students will have had to have done um, connected to your master's dissertations. So with that kind of broad basic introduction, I'll, I'll launch straight into it. So my presentation is entitled Popular History, What Is It and Why Does It Matter? So I guess I want to start off by thinking about a question, a question that I just want kind of lingering in the back of your mind for the next couple of minutes. How do you know what you know about history? So you, you may have taken classes in history in, in school. Um, you may even have a history degree or maybe coming towards the end of graduating with a history and politics of the Americas degree. Um, you may even, depending on where you are in your career stage and study stage, you may even aspire to be a history professor. But no matter how much your ideas about history are shaped by academic study, they will also be shaped by popular history. So one of the things I want to think about, as the title of my, of my talk today suggests, is, is what is popular history and, and why does it matter? These are two of the questions that animate much of the research that I've been doing since about 2012, 2013, uh, and I wanna discuss them with you today. So to start with then, I wanna think about this question, what is popular history? And I think usually, if I had asked you what you thought popular history was, and those of you who have been taught by me, you know that I, I like a Mentimeter quiz. If I'd asked you to put ideas onto Mentimeter, um, 
I imagine you might have come up, come, come up with, with some of these um, some of these suggestions. When we think about the way the past is consumed in, in popular culture, we might think about museums and galleries like the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, pictured on the screen there in a rather handsome photograph. We might also think about places like historical landmarks. And um, I was thinking in the US context of Mount Vernon, the former home of um, George Washington, Monticello, the former home of Thomas Jefferson. We might also think about battlefields where reenactors re participate in history as a type of performance. And um, might think about civil war battlefields like Gettysburg. We might think about TV documentaries like those that endlessly discuss the battles of World War II that you can find on the History Channel, but also on Netflix and Amazon Prime, et cetera. Um, we might also think about historical dramatizations on TV and the examples that sprung to my mind as I was preparing this. You'll have your own, of course, things like Mad Men, uh, things like Bridgerton much more recently. We might also think about historical fiction, literary fiction in particular, um, all kinds of examples. Again, you could think of but another recent example in the American con context, Colson Whitehead's um, Pulitzer Prize winning the, the Underground Railroad, which is a novel that I recently read for the first time and thoroughly um, thoroughly encourage you to read. Um, finally, we might think about video games, I guess, like Red Dead Redemption, the Civilization series, or the game I've pictured there, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, which was a, a game recommended to me by some of the students on my um, the United States and the Cold War undergraduate module. So to put this in sort of slightly more academic terms, slightly more theoretical terms, I want to lean on the ideas of a really good historian of popular history called Jerome de Groot. And he argues essentially that popular history is, is history that is deinstitutionalized, i.e. it is removed from the context of the university. Uh, it is de-disciplined, i.e. it is removed from the context of professional history as it is practiced by historians trained in history with PhDs. And it's usually experienced kind of as a form of entertainment, or at the very least, it's conceptualized through the lens of the audience at which it is addressed. So that's a kind of groundwork for a definition of popular history rooted in some of those institutions and ideas that you, that you might already be familiar with. One aspect I argue that is often left out of the story of popular history in favor of maybe some of the more sexy mediums uh, that I've just mentioned to you is popular historical writing. In other words, non-fiction books about the past written either by professional historians or by journalists, but pitched at an audience beyond professional historians uh, at, a, at what often gets referred to as a general audience. So this is the type of popular history that, that I'm most interested in. In part, this interest stems from my fascination with a moment in the middle of the 20th century when many Americans felt that their country's ideas about history were in crisis. For the journalist and historian Alan Nevins, who's rather imposingly pictured on the left-hand side of the screen uh, in a room full of books and, and papers, the problem was, uh, excuse my slightly colloquial language, the problem was crappy historical writing. Writing in 1939 in the Saturday Review of Literature in an article you can see pictured on the right-hand side of the screen, he told readers that most historians were either pedants or popularizers. Pedants were narrowly focused, boring. 
Popularizers, on the other hand, didn't care about the truth of history or the facts of history and sought purely to entertain their readers. What was needed for Nevins was for popular historians to meld together what he described as fact and art, to balance between high quality research on the one hand and engaging writing on the other. So the book I've just finished, I'm just finishing writing, um, which like I say, should be published by the University of Chicago Press, hopefully next year or, or very early in 2023, tells the story of five historians who in the period after Nevins wrote between about 1945 and 1990, responded to that encouragement that he made to reconcile fact and art in the writing of popular history. And I'll tell you about those five historians uh, in just a minute. But first, let me tell you about the research questions that, that frame my work. I guess the one big kind of er uh question is the first one that you can see on the screen in front of you. What did it mean for historians to write for popular audiences during the second half of the 20th century? And then I guess there are three sort of sub questions that fit underneath that. How did these historians define their readership and what impact did it have on the politics of their work? i.e. how did they draw connections between the stories of American history they told and the present moment in which they were writing. I'm also interested in thinking about how the type of popular history these historians wrote was shaped by the American publishing industry and in particular the rise of the paperback book. Paperback books we kind of take for granted um, in contemporary culture but it's important to remember that in the form that we know them now they were an invention of the mid 20th century and they dramatically transformed the experience of reading for many people all over the world, Americans included. Finally, I'm interested in readers themselves. How did non-academic readers respond to this kind of popular history and how did it change the way they thought about the American past? So in asking these questions, I want to probe the impact that professional historians had on popular historical writing, which I hope to convince you is an important enterprise for a range of intellectual and political reasons. And I'll get on to answering the so what question um, about this research a little bit later on. So now to introduce you to my historians. As I mentioned, um, I have five historians as case studies and they are divided in the book as I'm writing it into two thematic sections. The first section focuses on these two chaps in bow ties on the screen in front of you, Richard Hofstadter and Daniel Borstin, two very high profile American historians who made their names writing about the American past between the 1950s and the 1970s. Now both of them Along with the publishers they wrote for, in the case of Richard Hofstadter, the, pu the publisher Alfred A. Knopf, uh, and in the case of Daniel Borstin, the publisher Random House. Um, these historians and their publishers identified general readers, general in inverted commas, as their key target audience. These readers were usually conceptualized as middle class, as white, and probably university educated. And remember that in the immediate post-World War II period, university education was expanding dramatically in the United States. The GI Bill was sending more and more ex-servicemen to university um, without them having to pay tuition fees. And this was expanding the number of Americans who had un undergone uh, higher education in the immediate post-war period. Both of these historians, uh, Hofstadter and, and Borstin, had different ideas about how to write for these audiences. 
Hofstadter wanted to challenge them and really with a kind of left-wing and liberal perspective on the American past, where Boston was much more interested in entertaining his readers and in providing them with quite a conservative view of the past. But they shared a definition of readership that remains with us today, I think. It was this idea of the general reader, which so often gets referred to in all kinds of forums. But what I think both of their case studies reminds us is that the general reader is not a timeless phenomenon. It's one that's historically situated and that is concretely um, classed, raced and gendered in a specific set of what you might call rituals that are enacted in the writing, publishing and reading of books. So that's the first um, kind of set of case studies in the first section of the book. And to prove that it's not just a book about white guys in bow ties who wrote history, the second half of the book shifts to a different type of historian um, who saw a different readership for popular history. Uh, and this is best exemplified, I think, in the three historians on the screen in front of you. On the left, John Hope Franklin, in the middle, Howard Zinn, and on the right, Gerda Lerner. So between the 1940s and the 1990s, each of these historians wrote books for audiences who actively combated the status quo in American politics. Franklin uh, was writing for white and black readers who wanted to challenge racism and segregation. Zinn was primarily writing for young audiences, uh, challenging war and militarism in the era of Vietnam. And Lerner was writing for feminists uh, in the 1980s and 1990s who were finding new historical ideas to challenge patriarchy. In doing this, each of these historians challenged the idea that popular history was only for that general readership identified by Hofstadter and Boston. Their audience was instead made up of what I argue are activist or were, were and are activist readerships who wanted to, the world to change and potentially wanted to participate in changing the world themselves and thus felt they needed a historical understanding of the United States to undergird those ideas. So as sales figures show, and I found a lot of information about this in the archives, Franklin's and Zinn's books sold millions of copies. Lerner sold slightly fewer, but nonetheless hundreds of thousands. Um, this type of activist audience offered just as much opportunity for selling books as the one uh, identified by, by Hofstadter and Boston. So that's the kind of the structure of my, of my book. Now, just to talk you through the uh, types of primary source materials that I'm used. Another one of the key stops in your um, dissertation presentations for those who've, who've, who've given them at some point in the past. So I'm interested in overlapping archival primary materials with printed primary materials and have been hard at work over the course of um, the last few years since I've been working on this project, scouring archives, scouring the internet, scouring libraries, um, for various materials that help me tell the story that I've just sort of outlined to you. So the first port of call for each of these five historians was their personal papers. So all of these historians um, are dead and all of them have really rich sets of personal papers at various different libraries around the United States. So Richard Hofstadter's are at Columbia University, Daniel Borston's are at the Library of Congress, John Hope Franklin's at Duke University, uh, Howard Zinn's at um, NYU and Gerda Lerner's at Harvard. I also looked at the papers of some of their friends and colleagues, and this gives you a kind of good dynamic of correspondence in particular, right? As they were writing to their friends, um, 
the historians themselves tended, and this happens with most correspondence in personal papers, the historians tended to keep the letters they received, but not copies of the letters they sent. So to get the full loop of uh, correspondence, it's been useful to go to, to other historians' um, papers and for other friends and colleagues of these historians. But I've also gone to the records of their publishers. Uh, and this has been really important because part of the effort of this book is to situate these historians in their relationship with the publishing industry. They could not have become best-selling historians without the hard work and the innovative work of their publishers. Um, and so sometimes when we see publishers' archives, we see authors having, frankly, fights with their publishers. Um, but other times we see them working very much in sync to kind of create and imagine the type of readerships that they want to engage with. I've also, in some cases, used transcripts of oral histories, both with these historians, uh, but also uh, about these historians. One particularly rich set of sources in particular was a series of interviews done after Richard Hofstadter's untimely death in 1970 with a series of people who knew him very well um, when, he was a, when he was a young man, which give a really kind of rich portrait of, of his life. So those are the archival primary materials. And whilst I'm a bit of a kind of archive fetishist, I really like working in archives and I find archival material fascinating. I've also used a considerable amount of printed primary material as well and I found that to be really rich. So obviously I'm writing about these, these five books um, or five sets of books. In the case of Boston, it was a, a trilogy and in the case of, um, of, of Lerner, it was two volumes closely linked together. So I've, I've been analyzing the books themselves. What are the arguments within them? What kind of points are they making about American history? What's the writing style that these historians are writing in? I've also been looking to place these books within the larger constellation of writings undertaken by these historians. All of them were kind of public intellectuals in the sense that they were very regularly writing in newspapers and magazines, um, and intervening in, in public discourse and therefore piecing their histories together with those interventions in public um, intellectual life is, is quite useful. Most, not all, but most of the historians also wrote either autobiographies or memoirs, and you can see the cover of, um, of Howard Zinn's You Can't Be Neutral on a, on a Moving Train um, here uh, on, the, on the screen. And these have been really useful in terms of getting a sense of how these historians remembered key moments in their lives. Also been quite interested in comparing these books to their competitor titles. As I mentioned when I talked about the sales figures, all of these books were incredibly successful. Um, but that wasn't a kind of preordained thing, right? Uh, other historians had some of the same ideas as these historians and tried to publish similar books, but those books at, at about the same time, but those books weren't very successful. And so it's interesting to kind of try and think about what it was that made these five historians writing the books that they wrote highly successful. Uh, so thinking about their competitors is another way of doing that. Finally, thinking about book reviews and um, how the books were reviewed by the people who read them. So that might have been kind of highbrow reviewers for newspapers and magazines and maybe even academic journals. It might have been um, school kids who wrote reviews. And you can see one of these in the bottom right of the screen here. This was a review of John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom written in the 1970s. The book was actually published in 1947, but it was continually reissued during the course of the second half of the 20th century, written by um, black school kids uh, at a uh, high school in Chicago. Um, and the, the review was published in the high school newsletter along with an advertisement for the John Hope Franklin Afro-American History Club, um, which kind of gives you a sense of the lived experience of what it meant for people to read these books. But encapsulated within book reviews, I also think about the letters that readers wrote to the historians 
to talk to them about their responses to the books. And you get some fantastic letters along these lines. Women's activists writing to Gerda Lerner telling them how, telling her how much they, her books had influenced them. Kids, like as young as five, six, seven, writing to Howard Zinn, saying that they'd interacted with the People's History of the United States, whether they'd read it in school um, or had it read to them by their parents or by other family members. Really, really interesting stuff that demonstrate reader responses to the books that I'm writing about. So that's my source material. So I promised I'd, I'd get on and, and talk to you about what I think the significance of this research is. And I'll just spend the last five minutes, maybe a little bit more, talking about that. So first of all, um, I'm making two significant, or at least I think they're significant, significant contributions to the existing literature that overlaps with the topics that I'm writing. So these are kind of my, my academic contributions, the, the, the contributions that I think other historians are going to be interested in. So one of these in interventions is um, into what we might call historiographical study. In this field, some books look at big, broad thematic questions, like the book pictured on the left-hand side of the screen, Peter Novick's classic work um, on the objectivity question and the American historical profession. Others write about American historiography through the lens of biography. And a good example of this is a recent biography of um, uh, the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. by Richard Aldous. Another way in which historians write about this topic um, is they write about the way that historians and history were involved with uh, and informed popular culture in television, in museums, galleries, uh, heritage sites, etc. Some of those things I talked about back at the beginning when I was defining popular history. But none of these books and the many others that fit into the molds that they represent um, analyze how historians like the ones I've focused my attention on went out of their way to write for popular audiences and how this shaped their ideas about history and politics and also shaped the general public's attitudes towards American history. So that's my first intervention. Another contribution I, I want to make and, and, and I'm fairly confident my book is making, uh, is to the literature on the relationship between academic communities and non-academic audiences. So in this area, again, there are kind of, there are two different types of books. Some of them lament the disconnect between academics and the real world that developed in the years after 1945. So two examples of this are Russell Jacoby's book, The Last Intellectuals, and Richard Posner's book, Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline, both of which kind of imagine the late 19th century and the early 20th century as a, as a moment where uh, academics spoke to popular audiences in clear and coherent ways that this is something that, that went by the wayside after the Second World War. Other historians uh, reject the idea of this disconnect, um, but see the connection as being one in which social scientists were the real trendsetters. Not historians, but social scientists, people like sociologists, anthropologists, economists, psychologists, all of whom historians like Sarah Igo and Jamie Comey Cole argue shaped fundamental American conversations about America's society, politics and place in the world during the 20th century. So what my book shows is that historians were also a key part of this dynamic. Studying them, I think, shows that the decline of the public intellectual is a, is a false narrative, or at least a, a much more complicated one than people like Jacoby and Posner have argued. 
but also that social science was not the only way to communicate with popular audiences in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, this was eminently uh, possible in um, arts and humanities subjects like history as well. So where does this history that I've been writing leave us today? One way to think about this is to think about how contemporary popular historians fit into the models created um, in the post-World War II period. And I've put two examples up on the screen here that I'm, I'm hoping to use in the conclusion to my book. So in 2018, the Harvard historian Jill Lepore published These Truths, a new narrative history of the United States uh, designed for the post-truth era. In publicizing the book, um, she went out on a limb and made herself very unpopular with other American historians by bemoaning the historical profession for not reaching out to general readers in an engaging way, something that her book sought to remedy. In doing so, she framed herself as part of the tradition initiated by historians such as Hofstadter and Boston. When he published Stamped from the Beginning in 2016, Ibram X. Kendi framed his work differently as a type of activist popular history for the Black Lives Matter moment and generation. This best-selling and award-winning history of racist ideas was addressed squarely at readers who thought of themselves as not racist and fits into Kendi's larger project of convincing these audiences that to be not racist is not enough. The key, as the title of a subsequent book he pu uh, published put it, is how to be an anti-racist. And it's worth just noting as an aside here that as well as a series of the best-selling books for adult readers, uh, Kendi has also developed a children's book along these lines and has a forthcoming uh, Netflix series, which he signed a contract for in, in January. So in making this case, he was very much drawing on that activist tradition of Franklin, uh, Zinn and Lerner. So we now live in a kind of new media landscape, but nonetheless, books and their authors still retain significant intellectual and cultural currency. With the rise of the internet, with the rise of digital technologies, books have not disappeared and they still have an ability to, to force the conversation. And I think the examples of Lepore and Kendi highlight how the echoes of post-war popular history remain with us today. So that's one way of kind of framing the significance of my work beyond, um, beyond academic contributions. Um, another is to more broadly think about the so what question. And I was having a drink with a friend on Saturday and he was asking me how my work was going. And he said something along the lines of, so a historian is writing a book about historians. Um, is that really a big deal? Um, and in a sense, you know, he was right. These are the questions that we all need to be thinking about when we do our research. What is it uh, about our research that means that it's significant and important, um, not only to our fellow academics and other people really kind of interested in history and politics, but also maybe to a broader audience. It's not necessarily that they're going to read our dissertations or our books or our articles, uh, but it, it, should, it should be something that is on our, our horizon. So I think there are kind of three questions um, that I'm interested in thinking about, each of which I think speak to broader political and cultural questions that reach beyond, um, beyond the university. So the first relates in a sense to, to policymaking. Um, and this is answer one. So what answer one? Historicizing academic cultures of, of impact. We live in a world where the government in the UK, universities and other institutions in places like the United States expect historians um, and other scholars, scholars in all kinds of disciplines from STEM all the way through social sciences to the arts and humanities, 
expect us to be able to justify ourselves in terms of impact. What impact is your research having on the real world? And if it isn't having any, it's not important. And to prove this impact, we're often asked to demonstrate the kind of commercial viability of our, of our research, or we're asked to move beyond the university, move beyond the tasks of teaching and writing to impact in a whole variety of different ways. And what I think my project identifies is the fact like there's uh, is a set of historical precedents to show that to have impact historians don't have to go out into the world of heritage TV series etc. Of course they can do uh, and many of my professional colleagues do that very successfully, but historians can also directly impact popular ideas about the past through their writing. And this is something that we shouldn't discount in a world driven by impact. So there's a kind of there's a slight policy angle there. I think the other two um, ideas are, are more cultural, uh, but they're nonetheless significant. So another argument of the book is that popular history, to go back to that definition I provided you with right back at the beginning, it doesn't have to be de-disciplined, de-institutionalized. Professional historians can practice popular history via their writing. Um, if we think imaginatively about how we tell the stories of the past, if we train graduate students and, 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 and ourselves to think about history in these ways, we are not being less rigorous, we are not being less serious, we are not being less professional, but we are potentially shaping popular history. So rigorous cutting edge ideas about the past can be engaging for, for non-academic audiences. The third answer uh, revolves around demythologizing the idea of the general reader, which, as I mentioned on a couple of occasions, is something that really circulates in, in contemporary intellectual culture, uh, in contemporary literary culture. We have this idea of a general reader. What my book hopes to show is that, that there are multiple publics for popular history, not just one. Some are middle class and traditional, maybe bound to the status quo, maybe love their books about the Second World War, the Civil War, etc. But others are subaltern, radical, seeking change. And it's probably fairly clear from the way I framed those comments, which of those two audiences I'm more interested in and excited by and thinking that popular history should be trying to engage. But I think another really important point is that we shouldn't necessarily be privileging one of those audiences over another. When we think about the impact that historians can have on the broader culture and on broader discussions of, of, of national pasts and global pasts, we shouldn't be prioritizing one or the other. We should be recognizing the existence of both, of multiple publics, uh, and of thinking how best the work that we're interested in doing can address those. So I'll stop there. Um, I've talked to you for just under half an hour, I think. So um, if people have questions or comments or anything like that, that would be fantastic. I'd be really interested to hear them. I'm happy to stay till six o'clock uh, and, and, and keep talking, but I'm also happy uh, to shut up and, and, and go away if that's what people would prefer. But I'll stop sharing my screen. Um, so maybe we can now hear each other and see each other. And I can just make sure, yes, everyone can unmute themselves and start their videos if they'd, if they'd like to. Um, and I think I know how Zoom works enough to be able to see if you have your hand up or want to post a question in the chat. Um, does anyone have any questions? Hey, so I can see Chris has put his hand up and I can also see that Marietta has turned her camera on. Is that because you'd like to ask a question, Marietta? Yeah, go for it then. Marietta first and then, and then, and then we'll hear from Chris. Yeah. Hi, Nick. Thank Hi. you. It was a very good presentation. 
I, um, I really liked it. Um, I, I love archives and I love history and just, yeah, what I, I feel like publish what, what you're trying to, um, contribute with is, is basically what, one of the questions that I've been asking myself about history. So, um, I want to read more about it. <laughs> I want to read your project. I want to read your <laughs> book. <laughs> so yeah, um, I don't, I don't have any questions. I, I just, well, at the moment, I don't have any questions, but, um, yeah, I think the last point that you made, so answer three, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, uh, this is something that I've been thinking about because I, I think when we, I, I used to teach history and uh, in, in, in schools, right? So, um, my, the, the first question that I, that I had was how can I make this lesson or this, you know, a teaching more likable? And this is very difficult to do very difficult and and we we feel the distance right it's just we have students and then we have uh historians or teachers and we feel like there's a big gap and students feel that this is difficult to understand and this is difficult to like so i feel like popular history uh is is, is an amazing contribution to that to make history more likable yeah uh, i think that's I think that's a really, really interesting set of points, Marietta, and it's something that I've been, um, I've been kind of grappling with as well, because one of the reasons these books that I'm writing about and these historians sell so many copies and become so influential is, is, part, is related to part of the process that you're, that you're identifying, right? So um, a classic teaching strategy in the United States um, for like students who are getting to the end of their high school studies right we're not talking about really really young kids but um students who are getting to their end of end of their high school studies is to is to start throwing the voices of historians like Richard Hofstadter um Howard Zinn in particular those are two who often get get thrown in but but others others as well Franklin's in there Gerdelan is in there um to get the students thinking about like what makes history controversial and what makes history more than just learning facts and, and kind of learning the sort of narrative history of your nation. And I think what's really interesting about all of these historians is that they're not afraid to inject a sense of like personal subjectivity and argumentation into the, into the writing that they do. And so one of the things I've seen from the archives from the like 70s, 80s, 90s, and I, I'm pretty sure it's still going on from what I understand conversations I've had with people is the fact that these kind of controversial, maybe slightly radical, but not always, but controversial is the most important thing. Perspectives get thrown in to teach kids, like being a historian is about taking a, taking a stance and making an argument. And we, yes, we try and be accurate and we try and be impartial, um, but that doesn't mean that we're boring. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. it's, it's interesting to see that. And, and one thing that I'm kind of interested, conversation I'm interested in having with people is like, is that, is that still a useful strategy in the classroom? I, I get the sense it is from the teaching I do, but that's to undergraduate students at universities, right? Not to, not to school kids, but it, there's an interesting kind of element to this. These books are not textbooks, explicitly not textbooks, yet they make, they have resonance in the classroom in the way that you're describing. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I feel that, for example, uh, journalists, um, what they do is, is amazing. I really love reading uh, books written by journalists uh, yeah. because I feel that they, they can make this connection and they, they take sides, right? They, they do it and is uh, and, and you feel like somehow kids what well, this is my experience 
they feel this connection and they say, okay, yeah, for example, I'm thinking about a dictatorship in Chile, right? Uh, and, 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 and when we teach that, because I'm from Chile, and we, we teach that period and, and, and when we provide different points of view and we provide some uh, articles or, or papers or things written by, by journalists, they somehow recognize the experiences and they, mm -hmm. they feel this connection. And I think this, this is exactly what makes history more, um, um, I don't know what was the concept, but just, just uh, you feel more involved with it. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. That's re that's that's really really interesting, and and you know that also opens up the question of kind of writing style. How do we make how do we make history engaging? Um, how do we make it fascinating to people whilst also retaining some degree of intellectual seriousness? Um, and I think each of the historians that I write about in different ways learned a lot from kind of forms of journalistic writing, precisely because that that's a that's a kind of style that that is. That is really kind of maintained there um, in a way that professional historians aren't necessarily trained to do right we're trained to be sober and impartial and, and accurate um, yeah. and not necessarily always trained to, 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 to be engaging and entertaining in a, in a way that is is nonetheless serious so I, yeah that's really really interesting so I can see that Chris and Sabina have their hands up Chris do you want to go next and then we'll hear from Sabina yeah sure but, uh... I was going to try and start my video, not that you hey, need Chris. it. Nick, hi, how are you doing? Thanks very much for the talk. It's very interesting, Nick. Um, always good to know, to hear more about what you're doing. Um, I was just going to ask you to talk a little bit, because it's something that you know that I'm thinking about and considering all the time. And I was actually going to email you the other day, and then I thought, no, I'll wait and, and, and come tonight and ask you a question in person, because it might be interesting for other people, it may not. Um, the, I, I'm, I'm really interested in what, I know we. I don't think we can come up with a precise set of rules to determine what is popular history and what is academic history. But nevertheless, it's the sort of thing that when you see it, you kind of know it. <laughs> um, even though sometimes they cross the boundaries and they conform to um, rules that seem to be set by the other discipline, if you like, they might be. They might have extensive foot. You know, popular histories might might have extensive footnotes, and academic histories might be might show a, an alarming paucity of footnotes. Um, also, with, with, with regards to the, the, the sort of subjectivity of it, you know, often, although, you know, academic historians are trained to, to follow a degree of sobriety in their writing, we all know that also that isn't always the case. And certainly in the field that I work, that, it, that isn't the case, because politics is very much at the heart of it. Um, but the book that I'm um, thinking about a lot at the moment is uh, the 60s, day, the Years of Hope, Days of Rage that we've discussed, the Tolkien work, and trying to decide where a book like that really fits. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not published by an academic publisher. Um, it does contain citations. It is written by somebody with a serious academic record and it isn't necessarily written for a wide general audience. Yeah. Um, it's also been very popular and successful. Right. Um, how do we, what do we, what do we use to determine? Yeah. It is. It's a really good question, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently in writing the introduction to the book. And I mean, the other the other thing to throw into the mix of that particular book, 
um, which is one I'm familiar with as well, not necessarily everyone in the room is going to be, but is that it's also quite significantly autobiographical, right? So the guy, so the, the author is throwing elements of his own life and his own experience into the history that he's that he's writing. I think it, yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting set of questions. So like one observation that, that I'm quite committed to and, and draw on is one drawn from the field of, of, of public history, you know, which is its own sort of sub-disciplinary ecosystem. You know, it, it is a, a really thriving field in the UK and the US, um, training people in a whole variety of ways um, to go into careers in, in museums and galleries and, and archiving and, and, and all kinds of things like that. And one of the key observations, one of the key theoretical underpinnings from public history, as I understand it, is that there is there should never be a strict division between the academic and the popular or the academic and the public, right? That if we erect that barrier, what we what we do is enact kind of rituals of of disciplinary elitism, right? We say that there are experts and then there's everyone else. And the role of the expert is to communicate to those other people and not have any, not have any kind of two-directional traffic, right? And I think that set of observations. I kind of keep, I try and keep it on my shoulder because it's sometimes quite easy for me to slip into the mold of thinking, well, I have this group of five historians and the story I'm telling is of them enlightening their readers through their brilliance and maybe the brilliance of their publishers. But actually, I think one of the one of the loops that I see from in the relationship between the historians and their readers is the fact that the readers are fundamentally influencing the historians. And like to get to give you an example of this, so John Hope Franklin's book. Um, from slavery to freedom is um, first published in 1947 uh, and the latest edition um, came out a year or two ago I think it was the ninth edition of the book so it's a book that's still in print and it's getting updated now John Hope Franklin died a few years ago so the project's been taken over by another African-American historian Evelyn Brooks Higginbottom but the reason I raise this now is that when that book was first published um, the subtitle of the book from slavery to freedom was uh, uh, history of Negro Americans, right? And um, that was kind of the appropriate language in, in 1947 um, that all historians, white and black, agreed on. Um, and Franklin was, was, was happy with it. But as you can imagine, during the 60s and the 70s in particular, there was a lot of resistance to that. And this book was a, a key text for people in the civil rights movement, uh, some maybe even in the Black Power movement too. It was a, it was a, it was a key text. And Franklin got all kinds of letters from readers saying, you need to change that word. Just the, the, this, the, title, the subtitle of this book needs to be updated. And like for various idiosyncratic reasons that I won't go into now, he was quite resistant to this and the change didn't actually happen until the 1990s. Um, but what happened then is that he and his then co-author thoroughly rewrote the book to take into account all kinds of new perspectives on black history that had emerged in the last 20 or 30 years. And the book, the book and its arguments kind of fundamentally changed. Um, and that's really interesting. And that kind of demonstrates the give and the take from the author to from the from the author to the reader, from the reader to the author and, and back. So I guess that speaks to that that process of of not wanting to be too essentialized about who the professionals are and who the people they're communicating with is. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's too postmodernist to kind of say everything is, you know, everything that is a text that is gesturing towards history in some way is in itself history and historical. And then it's up to us to kind of define genres where we think they're intellectually useful rather than defining genres to police them with kind of borders and boundaries because we want to protect what we're credentialed in, which is something that historians often get accused of doing, right? So I think 
I'm very open to those boundaries being kind of fluid. And I think there's, there's multiple reasons why that's a good idea. Um, Sabina, next. How are you doing, Sabina? Hello nice there. To see you. I'm good, thank you. Thanks, that was a really interesting talk. Um, and I think it's really kind of apt in the current moment where history is being so politicized at the moment by, by governments. Um, but I kind of wanted to ask a question which comes from a different perspective in that rather than changing public perspectives, do you think there needs to be more work done in terms of changing um, academics perspective in that some academics, certainly historians, are very sniffly about popular history? Yeah. Um, and, and to me, I mean, I love history. I've loved it from such a young age. Um, and I had a lecturer who was particularly um, big on Hayden White and Jerome de Groot. <laughs> and um, I think history really is about changing people's perceptions. If you just study it in a vacuum, it's kind of meaningless, or at least that's what I think. Um, so yeah, what do you think in terms of changing academics' perceptions in terms of engaging with popular history? Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really good question. And, and I, to be honest with you, I haven't written the conclusion to my book yet. I'm just kind of building up to thinking about it. So giving this talk was really, really useful because I want to engage with some of those questions um, in, the, in the conclusion. And, and I think, and Emily, who's in the room, uh, who's an undergraduate student who, who uh, I've been teaching this year on a, on a module, getting students to think about the way in which their history and politics degrees can speak to, to non-academic audiences. We'll, we'll know that I'm quite committed to this in a, in a whole variety of different ways. I think we can be doing more with all students at universities, whether they're undergraduates, master students, PhD students, um, to be kind of training them and providing them with opportunities to think about, um, about how, to, how to communicate in popular forums, right? And it, and it might be about um, writing op-eds um, and getting them published in places like The Conversation or in, on national newspapers' websites. Um, it might be there's a, you know there's a whole range of, way, of ways in, in, in which it, it, it could be done, um, but I think one of the stories that I'm that I'm kind of telling in this book is the fact that all of these historians knew that this kind of popular writing was what they wanted to do from quite a young age, and they and they they found different ways of training themselves and developing their skills to do that. Some managed to do it like rather dauntingly in their mid thirties, uh, the same age as me, like writing books that sold millions of copies. Others of them had to wait until they were in their kind of fifties and sixties later on in their careers. Um, but they were nonetheless really good at developing these skills, but none, none of them were formally trained in it. I don't think they were all coming up in an academy that was precisely what you just described, sniffy about this type of history, unsure as to what it said about the historical profession, um, that it was possible to do these things. And, and you know, someone like Howard Zinn, you know, I've had multiple people come up to me after I've said that he's part of my project and like, Nick, he's not a proper historian. Why are you, why are you writing about him? And, and in part, that's the reason he's interesting to me is because of the, that level of skepticism that, get, that someone like him attracts. So, so yeah, I, I hope, and, and one of the peer reviewers on my book proposal kind of kindly said this, and it's something I've been trying to kind of write into the book is that I hope this might sort of, intervene in that conversation in a little way and say, well, look, actually, there are great examples of how successful this type of writing has been. Yes, there are ways in which historians need to demonstrate their professional skills, um, and we shouldn't ignore those. 
but also we should give lots of professional respect to people who find broad audiences and, and write best-selling books um, because that genre of, of historical writing is really important too. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a really, really good question. Each of these three questions has been great. You've, you've made me think I need to write things in either my introduction or my conclusion that I haven't yet written. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really productive. Thank you. Does anyone else have anything they'd like to ask? Hi, Emily. Hi, I was just wanting to ask, um, what do you think in terms of popular history, like young aspiring historians like myself, like what do you think, you know, in terms of going into the field, what kind of role would we have to play in kind of making our history, our research and stuff uh, accessible as a form of popular history? Like, I mean, I, I think about the way in which there's, you know, different historians in the media and the way in which they kind of market themselves. I was actually having a conversation about this yesterday, you know, people going on MSNBC and stuff or, you know, making their presence known through Twitter and stuff um, and op-eds and whatnot. So like what what is kind of the path forward for the younger generation of historians in, in the way that you see it? Yeah, it's a really good question, Emily. Um... And again, something I, I, I want to I wanna touch on in the conclusion. So it's nice that you asked that question because it demonstrates to me that there are people who would be interested in, in reading this. Like, like, I am not one of those historians, right? I do not have a high public profile. Um, and people don't know me because of my, uh, my column from MSNBC or my regular television appearances because, because those things don't exist, right? But, but I, so I, I wouldn't be speaking from my personal experience, but I think there are, there are interesting things that you can draw out of the, of the five kind of overlapping semi-biographical stories that I'm, that I'm telling in, in the book. And I, so I think there are, there are a bunch of different things and these have been borne out by conversations I've had with um, people who currently work in the publishing industry as, as well, who are editors, frankly, of historians of this type um, now, of the type of people like Joel Lepore, Ibram Kendi, people like that. So there's multiple things. I think the first is always to, to have these kind of questions in the back of your mind when you're choosing topics to work on, right? Um, choose topics to work on because they'll allow you to progress professionally, right? That's really important. And I know like, you know, you're, you're going off to do a master soon. You're hopefully gonna, gonna do a PhD after that. When you're choosing your topics, it's worth having these conversations. Like, don't be, don't be scared to have these conversations with people. Right. So that's what that's one thing, because because some of the um, some of the editors I've spoken to have said, like, frankly, there are some topics that we're interested in and others that we're not. And that's not a really narrow definition. It's not like you have to write about the Civil War or World War Two. And those are the only things we're interested in publishing in. They're really intellectually exciting. Um, but they are also saying things like some topics work better than others. So it's not. It, so that's the first thing. The second thing that goes on from that is it is also about style. Right. Like the implication of what I just said is that you can't make everything sexy, um, but that you could make a thing that has the potential to be very sexy, unsexy in terms of the way that you wrote about it, right? So one of the things that I think is present in all five of these different historians that I've written about is a strong sense of like, who are the writers that I like to read? And why do I find them entertaining and engaging? How do they meld the seriousness with the engagement that they need to do to be both professionally respected and read by people beyond beyond the university. 
Um, you know, and like there, there are all kinds of different examples. Like Richard Hofstadter really loved um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of other examples now because they all have these kind of literary examples from their youths. Um, Gerda Lerner had um, various, because she, she, she grew up in Austria, various German and Russian literary figures that she looked to. Um, Borstin was inspired by uh, like Jewish intellectuals who wrote nonfiction. Like there are all kinds of different examples, right? Some some of fiction, some of nonfiction. But thinking act actively about who your who writes well and, and why do they write well? Um, and I think the, the the final point there is 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 to be ambitious, right? Like that's that's the other thing I feel like I've learned. You look at some of the letters that these people were writing really early in their careers and you're like, wow, how did you have the confidence to, to have those ambitions when you did? Um, and, and thus develop the connections that they were able to develop, right? Because of course the, the real world is, 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 is not all about connections, but connections matter, right? Um, but they developed the connections because they were ambitious, because they wanted, they wanted to do this. So when you're choosing your topic, when you're, um, designing your writing style you know don't just sit back and think oh well I'm only a master's student or a PhD student you know like recognize that you're not in the next year probably going to write a 900 page bestseller but also also feel like you you should be having those ambitious conversations with the people who you want to be having them with to, to to learn and to develop and to make those connections so yeah again another useful thing I want to write into the conclusion so <laughs> thank you all right, I would be very happy to take another question, but we've been going for about an hour, so, and it's also six o'clock in the evening and everyone's probably got dinner to cook, friends and family to talk to, dogs to walk, that's what I'm gonna be doing next. So maybe we can, if, if no one has any more questions, maybe we can, we can round off. Um, this has been so much fun. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate your, your interest in my research and having had the opportunity to talk to you about it. Um, and I hope that this will be, maybe the first, well, it is, it's the first of four or five of these. I think next, ah, I should have reminded myself who was speaking next week. Um, I should have made a note to myself and I can't remember, but I know that Patricio Simonetto is giving a talk. That's I know that Malu week. Gatto is giving a talk. Um, I know that Gareth Davis is giving a talk. Did someone just unmute themselves to remind me? Yeah, it was, it, it, um, Patricio's is next week. Brilliant. Patricio is, is, is in the same time slot next week. So I'd encourage you to, to come along and hear about his research on um, the history of trans identity in, in Latin America and in, in, in Argentina more specifically during the 20th century. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, so thanks everyone. It's really, really nice to see you um, and have a lovely evening. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. Take Thanks. care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.